0: This morning we begin a new study. We finished up the book of James last week, and so uh, for a few weeks we're going to uh, travel to uh, a smaller book uh, of the New Testament and and open it up and seek what the Lord would have us to learn here. So I encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together uh, to the book of Jude. The book of Jude, very small book, one chapter only, right before the book of Revelation. Uh, so if you're unfamiliar, just turn towards the end of your Bible. If you find Revelation, just go left and you'll find the book of Jude. Just a few short verses, but packed in here uh, is something that I believe will be deeply encouraging for us as a congregation. Uh, so if you found your way there, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We're only going to be looking at the first two verses this morning, uh, Jude verses 1 and 2. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. You can sit this morning. We find in this book a letter written by Jude. Jude. Now, many have called this book perhaps one of the most neglected books in the New Testament because of its size, because of its somewhat obscurity, I and mean, it's very small, so you might look at it and think, well, what, what can you find here in just this short number of verses? Uh, but I would agree in, in my time of study and in my time of preparation for this, I would agree with what so many commentators say is that it's perhaps one of the most important books in the New Testament. Uh, because it speaks to the idea of confronting the teaching and the spirit of the age. But it's not written so much as a treatise on, on how to uh, deal with those false teachers, but it's written more in the idea of being careful to watch for those things, and then in response to that, to contend for the faith. Now, this is Jude's call to them. He says, I write to you, look it with me at verse 3. He says, I write to you that you would contend earnestly for the faith. And brothers and sisters, we live in a time where this is as much true today as it was in the time of Jude, that we must be contending for the faith. So this morning, I want you to notice just a couple of things in this text. And so first, we're going to begin with a little background, and then we're going to look at two things that I see in this text, which are three words of encouragement and three words of prayer. Three words of encouragement and three words of prayer. But first, I want to just give us a little bit of background on what's going on in this book, who Jude is, and and why he wrote this book to the church. Now, Jude tells us who he is there in the verse 1. He says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. James. Now, if you study who Jude is, it seems very obvious to us, he says he's a bondservant of Christ and a brother of James, as to who this points out this to be. Now, the word, the name Jude, is actually short for Judas, um, and so we can understand why, after what happened to Judas Iscariot, why most people who had that name, especially in the Christian world, most oftenly called themselves Jude. Uh, that name had been somewhat tainted uh, by the actions of Judas. But there were several different Judes um, in the New Testament. We see them in different places. Obviously, we have Judas uh, who uh, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed the Lord. Uh, but there were several others during this time. But as you study the, the history of the church and you study that, we can take it at face value, I believe, that he is the brother of James, who we just finished studying. So James was the half-brother of Jesus, which tells us that if Jude is the full brother of James, he is also the half-brother of Jesus, which leads a question that we might ask from the very beginning. If you were the half-brother of Jesus, why would you not say so from the, from the, from the onset? Would that not be one of the first things that you would want to say and to let people know was that you were Jesus's half-brother? Now, it could be for the fact that, um, for Jude, it, there was somewhat of a little bit of humility there. And also, maybe perhaps just a little bit of, of shame, because we understand from the Scriptures, John chapter 7, that as Jesus began to teach and preach and start His earthly ministry, that none of His family believed Him. They they all thought He was crazy. They thought He had lost His mind. And it wasn't until after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection uh, that His family came to believe the truth about who He was. So James and Jude were converted to faith after Christ's resurrection, and so perhaps it was just this element of saying, "I, I can't even still now bring myself to, to claim that, that lineage or to claim that or to try to use that in such a way because I didn't believe him from the very beginning." But it was also, again, an element of humility. And Jude was not writing here to try to be bragging about who he was as the half-brother of Jesus. Now, he refers to his brother James, because James was a leader in the church there in Jerusalem. We studied again him through that last book. And so James, so Jude uses his brothership to James as a way of showing authority, That is, he writes this letter, he says, I am the brother of James, the leader here of the church in Jerusalem. So he's writing to give this boast of authority. But I want you to notice what he says there, those, those very first opening words. He says, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now that word bondservant is the same word that Peter uses in 2 Peter, he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Christ. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. That word bondservant literally is the word slave. It's the word doulos. And it means just what we think it means. It means one who is owned by or in the possession of another. If someone is owned by or in the possession of the other, that means they've given up all the rights. They have no rights to anything in this world, only to do what their owner, what their master tells them to do. And this was the perspective of of the New Testament church. There was not this idea of a Christianity that just had Jesus as Savior but did not have him as your Lord. There was no perspective of Christianity that said, well, I'll I'll have a little bit of Jesus here when I want it, but I'm still going to live my life according to my desires and my prerogatives and what I want. Now, the New Testament perspective of Christianity is that once you become a Christian, you are a bond servant of Christ. You are his slave. He is the one who tells you what to do. You have given over and said, Lord, I realize that everything I tried to do in my life, I messed it up from beginning to end. I I had nothing good that I have done, nothing to offer, nothing to cling to. So, Lord, I'm giving it all over to you. You have full and total control of my life. This is what Jude is saying. And I find it so interesting that in James's, in James's mind, the most honorable title that he could put on his life, that the greatest boast that he had about himself was not that he was Jesus' half-brother, but that he was a bondservant of Jesus. Humanly, we would say, well, you know, I, I want to I lay hold of that, right? Dear Church, this is Chris, half brother of Jesus. We want to throw that in there, but James Jude says no. He says, My greatest title in my life, now that I believe, now that I have faith, is not that Jesus was my half brother, but that I am his bond servant. I'm the one who has given my life to serve him. So, Jude is writing this letter, half brother of Jesus, brother of James, but more importantly, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. I think it's important to think about this from the very beginning because one of the other concepts in the idea of somebody who was a bond servant was that everything that they did was for the glory and honor of their master. It was for the glory and honor of the one whom they served. It was to do everything they could to make sure that that person was, was, was accomplishing all that they wanted to accomplish. And it's the same thing for us. As bondservants of Jesus Christ, our job in this life is not about building our life in such a way as to bring glory and honor to ourselves. It's not about doing the things that we want to do in order to build ourselves up. We have committed to live our lives in such a way to glorify and honor Jesus. And everything that we should be doing, everything that we should be putting our hands to is to seek to do what he has called us and commanded us to do in the preaching of the gospel to all the world. So then the natural question is, as we look at a little bit of background here, is why did Jude write this book? What was his purpose? What was his intention? Well, thankfully, he explains it to us. We're going to be looking at this more deeply next week, but look again there at verse 3. He says, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. That was his initial point. He wanted to write to them and write to them about our common salvation. However, that's not what he ended up writing. See, he continues here. He says, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which is once for all handed down to the saints. Initially, Jude was just going to write to this church to expound upon the glories of the gospel and salvation. Because that's, to be honest this morning, that's something we should never tire of. I think so many Christians believe that the gospel is a one-time thing for them in their Christian life. You hear the gospel, you respond to the gospel, and then now you're done with the gospel, right? And now you just go on to, to greater things in the Christian life. But there is nothing greater than the good news of Jesus Christ. And we should be reminded every single day, we should preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. We need to be reminded of God's good news through Jesus Christ, that forgiveness is available for our sins. We remind ourselves every day that it is not out of our efforts, not out of our good deeds, but only by the obedience of Christ that we are saved. And that that is given to us freely by God, not of our own strength and ability, but freely by God. So this is what Jude desired to do. He was just going to write to them and expound upon the glories of the gospel. However, in some way, he had received news that false teaching was not just a danger to these brethren, but had already crept in. He tells us that in verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. False teaching is a danger for any generation. And it wasn't just that false teaching was on the outside of the church and a danger to them, but it had already crept into their midst. Now the false teaching that James, that Jesus, excuse me, I'm going to have to continue to remind myself that we're now in the book of Jude and not James, so you have to excuse me for this one sermon. But as Jude writes this letter, the false teaching that he is confronting is the false teaching of antinomianism and Gnosticism. It was very prevalent, in the era of the New Testament church. And it's a false teaching that was so destructive and dangerous and deadly that Jude knew that he must confront it head on. In a brief description, the Gnostics taught that the spirit was good and that the material things in this life were evil. Now in a later sermon, we'll go into this in a little more detail, but I just wanted again to give you a little bit of background. So the Gnostics said everything about the spirit, the spiritual world is good, but the material world is evil. And in light of that teaching, They said, well, you nurture the spirit, but really what happens in the physical world is of no consequence. So as long as you're nurturing on the one side, the spiritual side, you can do whatever you want to do in the world, and there's no consequences for it. So you have the freedom to pursue any kind of desires that your flesh may have. So if you want to pursue sexual immorality, sure, for sure, pursue sexual immorality. If you want to defraud your neighbor, sure, defraud your neighbor. None of those things have any consequences because they're inside this material world. And you can see how problematic that this kind of teaching would be for the church of Jesus Christ. You can see how problematic this would be for a new believer who has professed faith in Christ and come and become a part of the church to now being pulled aside by some teacher and said, well, you know, listen, here's, here's what it's all about. You don't have to turn away from all those things you used to do you can still be happy. You can still enjoy those things. You can still be a part of those things. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Because it's really still the spirit of the age in which we live. The reason that this book is so profound, not just for the first century church, but for us in the 21st century church, is that the teachings of antinomianism, which is the idea that we just make license of sin and abuse the gospel of Christ... Right, that there is no law for us now. The Old Testament has been advocated. We don't have to believe those things or listen to those things or, or, or apply anything in the Old Testament to our lives, but God's grace is abundant. So if God's grace is abundant, you just use as much grace as you need as you sin and live however you want to live. And the idea that you can do whatever you want to do, there are so many teachings that we see even in our own time that are so profoundly similar to what Jude was confronting here in the first century church. So this is the reason that he has sat down and penned this letter. Because he understands that what's happening here is not just a subtle thing. But it is deadly dangerous to the church of Jesus Christ. And it's the same thing for us in the time in which we live. False teaching, whether it be antinomianism, whether it be Gnosticism, whether it be denial of the authority of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, whether it be a denial of the atonement of Christ, whether it be a denial of the virgin birth, any of those things are deadly dangerous to the gospel. Because when you deny those key components of what the gospel is, of who Christ is, of who God is, of what His teachings are, then what you end up with is a false gospel. And a false gospel cannot save. On the outside, it looks perfect. On the outside, it may sound good. On the outside, there may be so many things that are similar, but if you are missing some of those key important parts of what the gospel actually is, then what you have is a gospel that cannot save. And we are confronted all across the board today with false gospels that are being preached in the modern church. There's the false gospel, the prosperity gospel, right? God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be healed, if you have enough faith, you can have all the money in the world. If you have enough faith, you'll never be sick. I find it interesting that those teachers get all their money not from, uh, not from service, but from just taking it from other people. I find it interesting that you have all these guys who are faith healers, and I'm not saying this in a mocking way this morning, but you have all these guys who are faith healers who end up with cancer and dying. It's happened several times over the last several years. Well, what about your faith, brother? Right? You, you've been telling people over and over throughout the course of your ministry that if you have enough faith, that God does not desire for you to be sick. Why are you sick and dying? Because it's a false gospel. You have the false gospel that is being propagated... So broadly in our culture today that that you can live a life of sexual immorality doing whatever you want to do and that God is okay with it because God made you that way. And if God made you that way, then that's just perfect and you do whatever you want to do. So this is why I think and I know that this book will be so important to us as we continue this desire to contend earnestly for the faith. So this is why Jude wrote this book. But what is it really? It's the last of the general epistles. It's this letter to confront these false teachings. And as Jude writes this, and I would encourage you this week to to read this book in, in your own quiet time. And what you're going to see here is that Jude writes with a clarity and authority. He writes with boldness. And in fact, in the original language that it's written in, it's very confrontational in the sense in which he writes, but not confrontational out of anger, but confrontational out of love and concern. His desire is to see the truth of the gospel maintained. Those of you who are men in this room, if you're married, if someone, you were out in public with your spouse and someone began to walk up, and to say hurtful and degrading things about your spouse, what are you going to do? You're going to stand up for her, right? You're going to confront that person who is saying those things. Why? Because that's your wife, and you love her, and you care about her, and you're not going to let anyone say anything about her. Brothers and sisters, we have the gospel. And as much as we love our family members, as much as we love our spouses and our children, we should love the gospel more. And we should defend the gospel at all costs. Oftentimes we're tempted to to lay back on this, but brothers and sisters, we must defend the gospel at all costs. What does that mean? That means we sacrifice our reputation. That means we sacrifice our friendships. That means we sacrifice even our very life if necessary because the gospel is that important. So Jude writes here with this this level of authority because he wants them to understand how important this is. False teaching is a danger to the church in any generation. And the craftiness of the enemy is one that he picks just the right false teaching to fit the spirit of the age. But if you look at the root of every false teaching, it all comes from the same bad seed. So as we study this book over the next several weeks, we need to study this and we need to listen with bent ear. I hope you know what that means. For somebody like me who has hearing impairment, if I'm not wearing my hearing aids and someone's talking to me, I have to do this, right? I have to hold my ear so that I can hear more clearly what they're saying. And this is how we need to listen to this book. We don't want to miss any part of it. We need to listen with bent ear, listening to what God would say to us. Now then the question might arise, then who is Jude writing this to? Where, where is he at? Now, he doesn't give us any background on to where he's writing from or to who he's writing to, but there's a few things that can be drawn from the text to give us a context on this. At first, he's referencing, as we said earlier, to him being a brother of James that would have only made sense, and that level of authority that it, that it betrayed would have only made sense if he was writing to those who also knew who James was. Remember that James was a leader at the church of Jerusalem. He wrote his letter to those churches that were scattered out across the region. So it makes sense that Jude was writing this book also to a Jewish audience. Secondly, Jude makes many references in his book to people and events that would have been confusing if he was not writing again to a mostly Jewish audience. So based on that, it seems that his target audience were Christians that were living in Palestine. So he's writing to these churches, he's writing to these individuals, to perhaps just a particular church, where he knew that this false teaching was most prevalent and most dangerously creeping in. And so when was he writing this? The same as his location, Jew doesn't give us a specific time, but again, we can look to discover some insights. Later on in this letter, we're going to find that he references several events that happened as symbolizing God's judgment on wickedness. He refers first to the nation of Israel that after they came out of the land of Egypt that God destroyed some of those who rebelled against him. He also refers to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as a testimony of God's judgment on wickedness. But noticeably missing if it had yet occurred, was the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Perhaps one of the most poignant pictures, of course, in modern times for a Jew at this time, would have been God's destruction of the temple through the Romans. But Jude doesn't mention it, which leads us to believe that perhaps he wrote this letter sometime in A.D. 60 before the destruction of the temple. So now we know who Jude is. We have a little bit of background. And so now I want us to look at those two points that I gave to you earlier. First, three words of encouragement and then three words of prayer. Notice there again in that first verse, he said to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Those three words of encouragement I want you to notice here in this verse are called, beloved, And kept. Called, beloved, and kept. And why are those words of encouragement? Remember, Jude is writing this to encourage them to stand firm for the faith. And as he writes them to stand firm for the faith and to contend earnestly for the faith, Jude knows a couple of things are going to be true, right? That it's not going to be easy, it's going to be a challenge. And whenever we're faced with the challenges of this life, we need to be reminded of who we are in God. We need to be reminded of who we are in Christ. And Jude could think of no three greater things than to talk about our calling, our love from God, and our perseverance in Christ. This is the first of many triplets that we will see in Jude's letter. He likes to triple things together. So I want you to notice first, there to those who are called. He's writing this letter to Christians. We always know that that word "called" is used all throughout the Scriptures to reference those who are inside of Christ. Romans chapter one, Paul says, "Those among you who are also the called of Christ." First Corinthians one twenty-four. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Ephesians chapter four, there is one body and one spirit, just as you also were called in hope of your calling. In Second Peter chapter 1, seeing that His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. We'll see as Jude opens up these things here that he's really doing three things. He's looking to the past, he's looking to the present, and he's looking to the future. To those who are called, he looks to the past Beloved in God the Father, he looks at the present, and kept for Jesus Christ, he looks to the future. So in looking to the past, Jude calls out to the reader this remembering of God's election and calling them to salvation. When we see that word called, we understand that that is a reference to the idea of God choosing us, calling us, electing us to our salvation. This eternal election is the work of God alone, not the will of man and not a collaborative effort of God and man. Calling, election, and predestination is the work of God and God alone. Let me go to the Scripture just for a moment in the book of Romans. We all know that Scripture. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are what? Called according to His purpose. So how are they called? Well, verse 29 tells us, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul here in Romans is laying out this beautiful picture of God's calling of His children, of God's election, of God's sovereignty in the role of salvation. We believe, the Scripture teaches, that before the foundation of the earth, before anyone had been born, before yet the earth had been created, God called us unto Himself. If you're here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not of your own effort or ability. It's because God, before the world was ever created, looked down and said, that one's mine. He called you. He elected you. He saved you. It was not the idea that you did something to earn it. Because the scripture is very clear here. He says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Now, many people have a deep struggle with the idea that God would elect those to salvation. That of his just own free choosing. That God would call and choose those who would be saved. But what's interesting to me is that they don't have a problem with God doing that in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, God had a chosen people, the nation of Israel. And he says, the scripture tells us that he picked those people, not because they were better than anyone else, not because they had done anything. He just looked down and he said, those people are mine and no one else. And God blessed them and kept them and protected them and shown his sovereign grace upon them all throughout the Old Testament. Nobody has a problem with the fact that God protected the nation of Israel while destroying other nations to the left and to the right of them. But for some reason, when it comes to the, to the personal act of salvation, people say, well, no, wait a minute. Part of that was me. Part of that was, was my human ability and my free will. Brothers and sisters, our free will is only as free as God allows it to be. And so some people try to get around this fact by saying, well, we believe what the Scripture teaches is that God looked into the future and he saw those who would choose him, and based upon their decision to choose him, he called them or predestined those individuals. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. One is, who are you putting in control of salvation? You're putting yourself in control of salvation. Secondly, the problem is, and the reason that people want to believe that, is they, can't, they want to try to get around the fact that there are people who have not been elected, that have not been called. So they they want to put it on man's side, but the problem with that other perspective, if you're believing that God looked into the future based upon the decision of man, predestined those people who would choose of their own free will to follow him, you also have to believe and admit that God looked into the future, saw those who would not choose him, and created them anyway. So you're really not getting away from the fact that there are those who are born, those who are created by God, those who are put on this earth with complete knowledge and understanding that they will not come to faith in Christ, the ultimate thing comes back to it is, who is in control of salvation? Is it God and God alone, or is it God plus man's efforts? Is it God and God alone, or is it God plus man and His free will? I believe Scripture is very clear here. Paul writes here, and he says, We know that God causes all things to work for good, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined. There's no, there's no collaboration here between God and the decision of us as human beings. But what I think, again, is so profound about this, and this ties back into what Jude is attempting to do. Why would Jude write this idea about God's calling and electing us to salvation? Why would this be such an encouragement to believers in the midst of difficulty? Paul says there in Romans chapter 8, In the immediate following sentence, after he talks about God's predestination and election, he says, "'What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us?' "'He who did not spare his own Son but delivered him over for all things, how will he not also with him freely give us all things?' Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Yes, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, yet rather, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. What will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The fact that our salvation is not of our own cause Now, again, don't hear me this morning as eliminating human responsibility. The Scripture is very clear that to be saved, we must respond in repentance and faith. Very clear. But how does that happen? That repentance and faith happens because the Holy Spirit of God moves upon the heart of the reprobate, moves upon the hardened heart of the sinner, softens it in order that we can hear and understand the gospel for the first time. Because we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and has been said before, I remember uh, Dr. Lawson said this one time, the only thing that a dead body can do is stink. And so we can't do anything in ourselves. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. The Holy Spirit moves upon our heart to regenerate us that we can hear the call of the gospel clearly for the first time and respond in repentance and faith. That is the only thing that we do is we respond in repentance and faith. Our hearts are broken. We're humbled. We look up. We see how holy God is. We see how wretched we are. And the only response that now our regenerated heart has is, Lord, save me. Do what you need to do in my heart and life. And the reason that that is so encouraging to the believer is that no matter what happens in this life, we realize that our salvation is not of our own effort and accord. And if God is the one who saved us, we can't unsave ourselves. Tragically, there are so many people who have been taught a false gospel that salvation is all about human effort and ability and all about human decision. And they've based their Christian life on a decision that they made, not a transformed life. They've based their Christianity on a decision or a prayer that they made, not on fully trusting in Jesus Christ. So when difficulty comes, what do they do? They, quote unquote, abandon the faith, but they're not really abandoning the faith. They're really just abandoning the false gospel they believed. Because for the believer, when difficult times come, we don't run from our faith. We dig deeper into our faith because we realize that it is God who has called us. God who has saved us. God who has redeemed us. This is why Jude writes to encourage them in such a way. The language that Jude uses here is taken from the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. When people and objects were sanctified and set apart for sacred use. When they were called, when they were sanctified, that means they were set aside for a specific purpose, for a sacred use. And in the same way, as we are sanctified by God, as we are called by him, we are set apart for work. God's calling us is not just a calling to salvation, but it is a calling to the service of God. It's a separation from the world. It's a separation from those things and a calling and a setting aside for the work of the kingdom. We are called out of the world. We are called into Christ and we are called up into service for him. Now Jude goes to the present. He says to those who are beloved in God the Father, he wants them to consider God's love. Again, in the original language, the words that he uses here point to the fact that God's love was evidenced in the past, but it continues now in the present. God didn't just love us, but he still loves us, and he will always love us. And how is that evidence? was well, evidence in the fact that, again, before the foundation of the world, God set forth a plan that he would send his only begotten Son, what does John say in John chapter 3? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. And so, in those moments of doubt, when you have to question because something happened, you say, Does God really love me? Yes, he loves you. He has shown his love in Jesus Christ. He has shown his love in your salvation. He has shown his love in the abundant grace that he bestows upon you each and every day. Do we always have the things that we want? No. But God's word promises that we'll always have the things that we need. Why? Because of his love for us. Because of his care for us. They're beloved in God the Father. He points them up to this idea to consider the love of God. Jesus says in John chapter 17, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Think about that for a moment this morning. That God loves you the same way that he loves his son. Think about that. You're You're not a step child to God. You've been adopted into the family. And although sometimes in human adoption, families may treat that adopted child differently than they treat their natural child. True adoption means that you adopt someone in, and they're no different. They they're not, may not be physically be your flesh and blood, but they are your flesh and blood. You love them, you care for them, you watch over them, and you treat them just the same as you do those who are your own flesh and blood. And we have been adopted into the family of God. We're brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And God loves us. Why is this encouraging? Because there's going to be times we need to be reminded of this fact. Again, the fight against false teaching is not easy. The fight against the things of this world are not easy. The Christian life is often not easy. And it's in those moments where we feel despair or discouragement that it encourages our heart and soul to remember, God loves me. Again, those of you who are married in this room, you know what it means to have the love of a spouse in the midst of difficulty and in the midst of hard times. There are times where, as a couple, you may be the only two people that you each other have. But what makes all the difference? You know that no matter what anybody else in this world may say about you or think about you, that you have that one person who you committed to for life, that one person, your co-laborer, your spouse, that's going to be there for you. Brothers and sisters, we have a God in heaven who loves us. Greater than any love we will ever know. Greater than any love that we could even show back to him. He loves us and he cares for us. So in the midst of this, we can look to him and say, God, help me to remember the fact of your great love for me talked about the past and being called the present and being loved by God. But I want you to also notice here in these three words of encouragement that, Paul, that Jude now looks to the future. And he says there that they are kept for Jesus Christ. It was Matthew Henry that said, When he begins, speaking of Jesus, he will perfect. Though we are fickle, he is constant. So Jude now calls him to think of the future, and it is a promised assurance of Christ's preserving power for the believer. We are in him, and we are kept by him. We have been given to him by the Father, and he loves and keeps us for that reason. Aren't you grateful this morning that your salvation is not kept by your own strength and ability? I remember, as a kid that I lost things constantly. Some would say I'm still that way, but I lost things constantly. I would get something new and I'd be so excited about it, and a day later, couldn't remember where it was. And you know what? That's exactly how we would be with our salvation if it was up to us. We probably wouldn't even last a minute if it was up to us to keep ourselves in Christ, but he keeps us. He holds us. He is the one who perseveres to the end, and he loves us, not on the basis of what we may or may not do. Jesus is keeping power for us. His love for us is not fickle from day to day. He doesn't look down and say, well, you know, brother so-and-so loved me really good yesterday, but not so much today, so I'll probably let go of him a little bit. No, he loves us and keeps us because he has been, we have been given to him by God the Father. God said, These are mine, I'm giving them to you. You watch over them, you keep them, you persevere for them. We are in Christ, and because we are in Christ, he keeps us. Not just for a moment, but forever. Because we are in Christ, we are forgiven. Because we are in Christ, we've escaped judgment. Because we were in Christ, we will persevere till the very end. There's perhaps no greater picture of this in the Old Testament than Noah and his family. The ark is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. Destruction is coming on the world. God is going to pour out his judgment on the earth. And again, there's a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty here in election. Because what did he do? He picked one family. Noah, out of all the people on the face of the earth, God picked one family, and he said, I'm going to put you in the ark. And because they were in the ark when God's judgment fell, they were lifted up, and they were carried away from judgment. And because we are in Christ, we escape the judgment and the wrath of God for our sins. We're carried away in Christ to forgiveness and everlasting life. we should always be keenly aware of what Calvin said. He said, For we should always be in danger of death through Satan, and he might take us as any moment as easy prey were we not safe under the protection of Christ, whom the Father has given to be our guardian so that none of those whom he has received under his care and shelter should perish. Because we are in Christ, we do not have to fear what Satan can throw at us doesn't mean that we won't face difficulty. doesn't mean that we won't face trial and tribulation. But we are in Christ. We are in Him. He keeps us. He holds us. So the Spirit redeems and calls. The Father demonstrates and teaches his, His love. Jesus holds us and keeps us. The entire Trinity is at work here through Jude's perspective. What a blessed reminder both to His audience and to us that God is at work even in the midst of difficulty. Even in the midst of false teaching, Jude wants to encourage them to remember, don't give up hope, don't be persuaded, don't fall into false teaching, don't be disheartened because it's happening, but trust who you are in Christ. Now finally, I want you to notice very quickly with me three words of prayer. Because Jude also wants to pray for them. As we see, almost every writer of the New Testament epistles doing. There's a moment where they take time to pray for those to whom they write. Our prayer here is found in verse 2. He says, may peace, mercy, and peace, and love be multiplied to you. As I've referenced several times before, and now I want to expound on it just a moment, Jude knew the difficulties of what they were going to face. Fighting against false teaching, as I've said before, is never easy. Why is it not easy? Because oftentimes by the time that a false teaching rears its head in a way that's visible, it's already sunk its teeth into a number of people. It's not often that you catch false teaching at the very beginning when it's just one or two people. Oftentimes you don't see it because false teachers, because those who are under the operation of Satan are so cunning, so secretive, so sneaky, that oftentimes you don't realize what's happening until many people have already been persuaded. Therefore, when false teaching has to be confronted, whether it's by the elders of the church, whether it's by fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, it will often be strongly defended by its adherents. They're going to stand up and say, well, yeah, but you just you just don't understand. We have a a better enlightenment. This is, in fact, one of the cries of the Gnostics. The Gnostics believed that they had an enlightened sense of understanding about spiritual things, that only they had been given conveniently enough, and that only they could fully understand because they were so elevated above everyone else. So when you have someone who believes that they have a higher level of spiritual understanding, it's very difficult to confront that. Because no matter what you say or do, you're always going to be deemed as just having too low of an understanding. We hear that today. When it comes to different sins in our culture, when it comes to the degradation of marriage and sexual immorality in our culture, what we hear from those who are proponents of it is, well, you know, you just don't understand what the Bible really teaches, you know, we know more now than, than Paul did. We have a greater understanding of what the Bible talks about now than they did. You know, the world is just not the same as it used to be, so we have to conform those things. We have to conform the Bible to the world. Jude knew what he was going to be confronted with, what they were going to be confronted with. Those who stand for the truth of gospel are often going to be criticized, slandered, and maligned for their efforts. So, his prayer for them was that they would know mercy and grace, and see, mercy and peace and love. And notice what he says there. He says, May they be multiplied to you. Because he knew they were going to need a lot of each one of those three things. They were going to need a lot of mercy, they were going to need a lot of peace, and they were going to need a lot of love. Mercy is the, as Matthew Henry would say, the spring and fountain of all the good that we have or hope for. Everything in this life that is good that comes to us comes to us from God. And in this wicked world, we need the mercy of God. We need to understand his mercy towards us. And God shows it to us. He gives it to us. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He knew they would need mercy. But secondly, he knew they would need peace. We have peace because we have received mercy. God showed His mercy to us in saving us, even though we didn't deserve it. God showed His mercy to us in redeeming us, even though we had done nothing to earn it. And because we have received mercy, now we have peace. We have peace with God because we've been reconciled to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. I know Pastor Wesley has often said this because it's a misunderstanding that a lot of people have. When we talk about someone being saved, what, what are we saved from? What are we saved from? Because oftentimes people say, well, I'm saved from hell. Yes. But, but what are you being saved from? Well, I'm saved from the devil. Yes. But ultimately, what are we saved from? We are saved from the wrath of God. God is saving us through Jesus Christ from his anger and from his wrath. The wrath and anger of God against sin is far more dreadful than anything that Satan or hell has to offer. We are saved not from Satan, but we're saved from the wrath of God. So to understand that because we've been saved from the wrath of God, now we have peace. We're formerly, we were enemies of God. We were hostily opposed to God and everything about him, and he was opposed to us. The scripture says in Psalms that God is angry with the wicked every day but now we have peace with God. And because we have peace with God, that peace supersedes not just our salvation, but supersedes the entirety of our spiritual life. When difficulty arises, when things happen as this, and we can say, no matter what happens in this world, I have peace with God. And he gives us everything we need in those moments. Thirdly, I want you to notice, he says, love. Calvin believed that this love referred both to the love of God towards man and the love of men towards each other. And I see no reason to argue with him. I think that point can be so true here. As believers, we need to be continually reminded of the divine love of God that is given to us and that daily we need to love others. We need to be reminded of that love that God showed to us. Romans chapter 5, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. 1 John chapter 4, no one has seen God at any time, and if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Just a few verses later, whoever confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and believe the love of God, the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We have a love for God, we have a love from God, and we have a love for each other. It is so important that we understand that love, as John tells us there in his book, is an essential part of the Christian life. If God does not love us, we do not have salvation. If we do not love God, we don't know salvation. But here's where the third one, and perhaps the one that is most challenging to many people comes in. If we do not love each other, then we don't have salvation. Love is not optional for the Christian. Love is not something that we get to decide that we'll do one day and not do the next. No, If we don't have love, then we don't have the love of God abiding in us. So as Jude is writing, it seems strange, doesn't it, that he would write to them to talk about the love not only that God has for them, but that they should have for one another when he's getting ready to talk to them about confronting false teachers? Because we need to remember, brothers and sisters, that even in the midst of confronting false teachers, we do it with firmness, we do it with authority, we do it with the power of God indwelling in us. We should also do it with love. Because sometimes there are false teachers who are wholly false teachers. They have given themselves over to Satan and they are deceived and lost as lost can be. But oftentimes there are some who have believed false teaching that have believed it because they were immature in the faith. So we go to them and we go to them with that love and graciousness to try to draw them back to the truth in order that they may know truth once again. Three words of encouragement to remind us of who we are in Christ. We are called, we are beloved, and we are kept. And three words of prayer that we may pray for one another, that we may have multiplied mercy, peace, and love in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction that we find here. And we pray, God, that this word may sink itself deep into our hearts. Over the next several weeks, Father, you are going to help us look at this book to understand what Jude and this church were facing. But, Father, also to look at our own lives and to see the things that we face around us and to understand the importance, Father, not just to have this desire to confront false teachers, but, Father, that our ultimate desire, our ultimate goal is to contend earnestly for the faith, to hold high the gospel of Jesus Christ, to cling to it with such passion, that, Lord, we would not allow anything to tarnish the good news of what you have done through your Son. Lord, remind us each and every day, Lord, that we are called, that we are loved, and that we are kept in Christ. Let that be such a deep balm for our soul, Lord, anything else that happens in this life doesn't matter because we know who we are in Christ. God, in direct our hearts, Lord, as we come to the table this morning, we ask, the Lord, that you would prepare us. Lord, that may we receive what you would have for us this morning. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.